Good morning. Good to worship with you today. If you're new and visiting with us for the first time, my name is Fred. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Thanks for coming to check out Redemption. We hope you enjoy the service today. Um, We are going to be in Colossians chapter 1, so I'll give you a moment to open your Bibles while you're doing that. A couple of quick announcements. Um, uh, Malawi mission trip team, we're meeting after this service today. And also for everybody, our Malawi uh, team is having a fundraiser May 13th. We're going to have a craft and vendor show. And so if you sell products that are appropriate for a craft and vendor show, please let us know. We'd love to include you in that. And uh, we'll have more details in the future about how you can help uh, uh, support this team as we get ready to go to Malawi this year. Uh, I do want to touch on something before we get into the message, and that is on Monday, there was, began a, a series of really tragic earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. And as of this morning, there were over 30,000 people confirmed dead. And so it's been just a really, really horrific week in that region. And rescue efforts are ongoing. They're still uh, pulling people out of the rubble there who are alive. So please uh, continue to pray with me that God would, would rescue the lives of many and that his, his presence would be felt in this time. Um, when things like this happen, there's a natural tendency to want to respond. And, um, you know, we can't always, as a church, have an organized response to stuff like this. And so I do want to point you to an organization that I prefer and really trust, and that is a, a ministry called Samaritan's Purse. Uh, you can find them if you Google them. Uh, they're a very large Christian relief organization, and they are always on the front lines of stuff like this, uh, providing help. Uh, they're there as a Christian witness. Some of you, they're the ones that do the shoebox, uh, shoebox ministry that we participated in this last Christmas. And so um, Samaritan's Purse is a great place to give if you have a desire to give at a time like this. Uh, they were, you might remember during the worst and scariest part of covid they set up a field hospital in Central Park in New York. And so they had these huge tents and they had doctors from all over the country there uh, helping save people's lives. And so that's a great organization. Like I said, there are times when when we'll have an organized response and try to do something specific as a church, uh, but we can't always do that. And so I wanted you to be aware. That's, in my opinion, a great organization to to connect to if you want to be involved in helping. All right, with that being said, let's look at Colossians chapter 1 together. Today, I want to look at verses 13 through 23. So we'll read the passage together like we always do, and then uh, we'll pray and jump into the message. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
Verse 21 says, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we consider your word today. Your word that promises to give life. Your word that is like a drink of water for thirsty souls. Your word that has the power to transform us, to make us new, to mold and form us into the people that you created us to be. God, as we come to that word today, would you speak life? Would you make yourself known through these words? Would you make your will and your plan of salvation known here in this place today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What is salvation? When you hear the word salvation, that implies being saved from something, right? So what is it that we're being saved from? Why do we need to be saved? How can we know that we are saved? How can we know that this Jesus who who promises to give salvation actually has the authority and the ability to do so? How do we know these things? Those are questions I want to try to answer today. If you're looking at the handout that we gave you on the way in, you'll see three sections. I want to talk first about the substance of our salvation. I want to answer those questions. What is salvation? Why do we need salvation? What's What's all of that about? The second section that we'll look at will be the Who is the Lord of our salvation? Who is this Jesus? And how can we know whether or not he can save or has the right to save? And then finally, we'll consider the sign of our salvation. What is the evidence that we actually have this salvation? So let's start with what is. What is it that you need to be saved from? You may or may not have come in here today thinking you need salvation. Most people, most of the time, probably they don't consider that they are in need of saving. Now, when something happens in our lives that, that threatens our health or our, our existence, something, some sort of threat comes in, then we are immediately aware of, an, of a need for salvation. You get a daunting health diagnosis or you're in, nearly in a car accident or something happens and you think, whew, man, I... I Life is extinguishable. It, it, it can happen in the blink of an eye. And, and, and perhaps you were saved from that. Perhaps you are still awaiting such salvation. But what you may not often consider is that spiritually all of us are born into this world in need of salvation. This is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we come into this world as sinners. We come into this world, you know, we say things like, oh, well, we're all children of God. And usually what we mean by that is correct. Usually what we mean by that is that we're all human beings and on the same level as one another, regardless of race or, or, you know, um, socio or economic status. All of us belong to the human race, which was created by God in his image. But let's be clear, when What's not true is that we are children of God in terms of in a 
correct relationship with him. The Bible says actually the opposite, that we are born into this world as sinners, needing to be saved, needing to be redeemed. How can this be true? How can 7 billion people on the earth right now need to be saved? Well, it's true mainly because the reason we need to be saved is because God judges by his own righteous standard. He doesn't judge by the standard with which we judge each other. If, I were, if, if you were to say to me, I think there's good people and there's bad people. And I said, well, how do you define the good people and the bad people? You would have some standard for measuring goodness. Well, the bad people kill others and the good people tend to help others or something like that. We have our own standard and that's fair and that's fine. We judge one another by whatever standard of goodness that we have. That, that just is, it's, it's just part of who we are. But God judges by one standard and that is the standard of his righteousness. And the Bible is explicitly clear that all of us fall short of that standard of righteousness and need to be saved. So that's why we need salvation. So what is salvation? <laughs> salvation, I'm going to give you a threefold answer. You see these on the handout in front of you. The substance of our salvation, salvation is, first of all, it is a rescue. Salvation, as we want to talk about it today, is a rescue. As we look at Colossians chapter 1, here's how I want to handle this passage. So we've got 11 verses, 13 to 23. The first two verses, verses 13 and 14, define salvation for us. And then if you skip down to 21 and 22, we again find a, a, a definition or an explanation of what salvation is. So those two passages sandwich this middle section. This middle section from 15 through 20 describes who, who Jesus is in, regard, in, in, in regards to our salvation. And so you have this sort of symmetrical passage that we want to look at. But let's first consider what is salvation. Verse 13, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So Paul speaks in terms of our former reality. For, he's writing to those who have received God's offer of salvation. They've received the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus. And he says, formerly you lived in what he's calling here this domain of darkness. It's our world. It's not just our physical world, but it's the spiritual state that we are born into. We are born in actual rebellion against God. And so he refers to that as the domain of darkness, but he says that salvation by definition is a rescue from that domain of darkness and a transfer into a new domain. And this domain is called the kingdom of the son he loves. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God that will exist for all of eternity. It's, it's what will be made up of God and the people whom he has redeemed as he lives forever with them, granting them eternal life. That is the kingdom of the son he loves. 
And what Paul is saying has happened is we're over here, we're doing our thing, we're, we're in the domain of darkness, we're just living our natural lives. And the problem with where we are at is that it leads to death. This domain of darkness is not where we were created to live. It's not representative of the kind of life we were meant to have. It's not the plan that God had for mankind in the beginning. It's the domain of darkness. It's a bad place. It doesn't have a happy ending. We live in this life and God has sent his son down into that domain. Jesus has come into our world. He has come into this place of darkness. He has come into this this place of death and he has rescued. Think of it this way. You're stuck, this is kind of a dark example, so bear with me here. You're stuck in a burning building and the room that you're in is beginning to fill with smoke and you're, you're, you're inhaling this smoke and you're becoming weak and you're becoming delirious and eventually you collapse down onto the floor and you're just fighting to stay alive and death is imminent and there's nothing you can do to save yourself. And then through the door comes this heroic fireman or firewoman And they scoop you up. And with no help from you whatsoever, they carry you out and they rescue you from imminent death. And they bring you back out into the the safety and the the life-giving oxygen of the outside world. And you begin to breathe normally again and you begin to recover. You have been rescued And you have been brought into a place where you can now live and survive. This is what Paul is saying Jesus has done. He has come and with no help on our part, he has entered in to the burning building of our world, the domain of darkness and rescued us and brought us into his kingdom. Brought us into a place where the air gives life. Brought us into a place where we can be well again and where we can live with him. It's a rescue. It is a transfer from one state or one domain into another and a very welcome rescue at that. But it's not just a rescue, it's also a redemption. See on the handout, the next thing, it is a redemption, salvation is a rescue from darkness, but it is also a redemption. We're gonna look at verse 14. In verse 14, it says, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we've been rescued, we've been saved, but the problem with that, with that illustration is, is it's, It's our deeds that have got us there. It's our deeds that have placed us in this place of needing rescue. And so we don't just have a need to be brought out of, but we have a need to be redeemed, to be repurposed, if you will. And so we're we're rescued from this life of, of deeds against God's kingdom. We're brought into this life where we now live in this kingdom and our lives are redeemed and repurposed. Paul defines redemption here as the forgiveness of sins. It is the forgiveness of sins, but it's, it's more than that. It's, 
that we've been born again to a new life with a new purpose, with new abilities to actually do things for good. Whereas before we were enslaved to sin, now we've been born again. And we're no longer enslaved to sin and we can do things that build his kingdom. See, what we were doing before was, was building this ugly place of darkness and death. And now we get to live this new life in which we're contributing to his kingdom. We are helping build what he is building to last for eternity. That's what redemption is. It's, it's this idea of being uh, forgiven and repurposed for something new. To be given new meaning in life. And a new reason to live and to serve the king of the kingdom that we are now in. That's what salvation is. He's rescued us. He has redeemed us. Thirdly, under the substance of our salvation, salvation is reconciliation. We've been rescued, we've been redeemed, and we have been reconciled. Now, some of you are like, what is this, a Baptist church? All these R's, what's going on here? <laughs> maybe a little bit, a little Baptist today, maybe. But this idea of reconciliation we find in verse 21. In verse 21, remember I told you how this passage is laid out. Re- a salvation and salvation with Jesus in the middle. So we're going to skip down to verse 21. We'll come back to the middle section. Verse 21 says, once you were alienated, that means separated, you were far from and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. Let me pause there for a second. This is how the Bible describes your life apart from salvation in Jesus Christ. You are separated from God. You may remember if you were here a few weeks ago, the video that, Greg, that Pastor Greg shared where it showed man and God separated by this gulf, this, this space in between that, that we can't seem to get over on our, on our own. And so Jesus came to bridge that gap, to bring us back into reconciliation with God. Reconciliation has to do with those who have, who have been at odds with one another now being brought back together in a harmonious relationship with one another. No doubt you have experienced this in life, whether with a spouse or a friend or maybe a brother or sister, where even though you had a good, strong relationship, something happened that caused you to sort of be at odds with one another. And there wasn't peace between you. And what used to be a lot of fun to be together is now, is now even if you are being together, it's, it's awkward, it's tense, it's, it's bad. You're, you're alienated from one another. Well, the Bible says that we have that same problem with God. Why? Because we sin. Because God is a holy and perfectly just God. God never ever allows sin to go unpunished because to do so would make him unjust. And who wants to live in a universe that is ruled by an unjust God? We experience enough of that here in, in, the, in, in our human life and like the human realm in the world that we live in. And it frustrates us when, when, when injustice is, is not punished. And we don't want to live forever in a world where where injustice is allowed to continue and where people are allowed to continue to do bad against one another. But the problem is, is we can't live in a world where justice is always done. 
because we're one of the ones who commit the injustices. And so for God to allow us in to his eternal kingdom, he'd have to deal with the injustice in us. How does he do that? Does he do that before we get to the answer to that question? Let me finish the sentence here because it says, you are alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. Your evil actions are the sins, they're the sins that we commit. The sins that, if I could define sin, is anytime we do something that's contrary to God's will, that's sin. And so we sin in our thoughts, we sin with our words, we sin with our actions, with our, with our deeds, with the things that we do. And those are all expressions of our hostility against God and against his kingdom. And he is committed to establishing a kingdom where there is no wrongdoing, there is no sin, there is no hostility. There's just joy and peace and life and goodness forever. So how are we going to be a part of that kingdom? The answer comes in verse 22, where it says, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. The answer is that God has punished the injustice committed by you. God has punished the sins that you have committed in thought, in word, and in deed, in Jesus Christ crucified. He doesn't allow sin to go unpunished. He can't allow sin to go unpunished. But he has a plan to display both his justice and his mercy through Jesus Christ on the cross. And through him bearing our punishment for our sins, we can be reconciled to God. And we can live in his kingdom And God is not unjust for allowing us to be a part of his kingdom because he has punished our sin in his son, Jesus Christ. So this enables him, as it says in the second part of verse 22, to present us holy, faultless, and blameless before him. What does this mean? What does it mean to be presented holy, faultless, and blameless before him? Well, basically we have two options. We will stand before God to give an account for our lives. That is clear. The Bible teaches us that much. So we'll stand before God to give an account for our lives, everything we've thought, everything we've said, and everything we've done. Now we can stand before God and be judged according to those three things, or we can receive his offer of salvation And we can stand before God and be judged according to what Jesus has done on our behalf. That's what Paul is talking about when he says he will present you before him holy, faultless, and blameless. So picture the scene. You're standing in line for judgment. You know, we always see these like cartoons, like you're getting, you're coming up to the pearly gates or whatever. That's probably not how this really happens, but I don't know. Who knows? Uh, You're standing in line for judgment. The guy in front of you goes and all of his sins are read from a book where everything has been recorded. Everything that he has thought, everything that he has said, and everything that he has done is read out loud. 
and he's judged according to what he has done. And now it's your turn. And if you're like me, you step to the front of the line, you're like, oh man, (laughs) I did some of those things too. And the judge looks at you. He says, Fred Neal or whatever your name is. Looks here like you are holy, faultless, and blameless. I'm like looking over my shoulder like, me? I'm holy, faultless, and blameless? And he says, yeah, because it says here, you received what Jesus Christ did on your behalf when he lived the perfect life that you could never live, when he died a sinner's death that you deserve to die, and it has now been credited to you as righteousness. That's incredible. That's incredible. That's, that's the gift of salvation, that we're not judged according to what we have done. We're judged according to what Jesus has done on our behalf. We have been reconciled by his physical body through his death so that we may be presented as holy, faultless, and blameless. That's the good news of the gospel. I started by saying, what is salvation and why do we need salvation? Well, that's my answer. We need salvation because we are not by nature right with God and we do things that prove it. We sin throughout our lives displaying that we are part of the problem We are part of the domain of darkness. Every last one of us, the Bible says that all of us fall short of his glory because none of us have lived up to his perfect standard of righteousness. You may have lived up to or exceeded the standard of the people set around you, but you fall far short of his standard of glorious perfection. But because of his love and his mercy, he has sent his son through whom we can be reconciled to him. Okay, so that's salvation. That's why we need salvation. Okay, so how do we know that Jesus has the right to give this kind of salvation? Like, who is Jesus that he can just die in our place? Who is Jesus that he can just gift us righteousness through faith in him? Who is Jesus that we can be confident that we'll stand before God and be judged according to his righteousness, not according to our sinfulness. The answer that Paul gives sandwiched between those two descriptions of what salvation is, is twofold. In verses 15 through 20, we find that first of all, Jesus is Lord over our creation, over creation, not our creation. Jesus is Lord over creation. That's the next thing you'll see on the handout. Who is this Lord of our salvation? Who is this Jesus who claims to be able to give these things? He is the Lord over creation. Look at verse 15 with me. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, you'll see firstborn in this section and in the next section of this passage. The emphasis here is um, not on being born, Uh, but on the preeminence of the one who is the firstborn. In other words, in this culture, to be the firstborn son came with certain rights and certain privileges and, yes, certain responsibilities. And there, there was an order that set the firstborn over any other brothers and sisters that might come after him. And so the emphasis here is not on Jesus being born because we're very quickly going to see that he always was, 
but the emphasis is on his preeminence, on his rank over all of creation. So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Who is this Jesus that he has the right to declare you righteous? Who is this Jesus that he has the right to say who's a part of the kingdom of God and who is not? Who is this Jesus that he has the right to grant salvation to those who believe in him? He's the Lord over creation. That's Paul's answer. Oh, he's just the one who rules over everything. He's the one who, by whom all of this came into existence. He says things that are visible and things that are invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is the one who is the reason that this earth exists and it belongs to him. He is the one that, he is the reason that the atmosphere that we live in exists. He is the reason that the sun that keeps our atmosphere warm enough to sustain life exists. He is the reason for the moon and the stars and the planets in the galaxies, in the entire universe. He created it and he is Lord over it. It belongs to him. So he sets the rules. It's his house and these are his rules. He is the Lord over creation. There is nothing that exists that does not exist because of him and for him. People think, man, it's just, it just seems so odd that there's so much space. There's galaxies. We're surrounded. There's all of these planets, and we can't even begin to measure what surrounds us. And why, why is it that there's only life found so far on this one planet? What's the purpose of all that other stuff? What's well, his? He created it because he wanted to have it. He created it for himself. He created it to display his glory. He created it to show us how great he is. It exists for him. It exists because of him. He spoke into existence the universe that you and I live in. So when we ask the question, who is this Jesus and can he grant salvation? Let's start with, well, for starters, he created all of this, so probably probably can do whatever he wants with it, right? Probably can, can do something that would help me. He's the Lord over creation. Second, next thing you see on the handout, Jesus is Lord of the church. He's Lord of the church. Not only is he, is he the God who... who who created everything that exists and rules over everything that exists and is the reason for which everything exists. But we're going to see now that he's the Lord of the church. 
So Paul transitions in verse 18. He says, he is also the head of the body, the church. What is that? What is the body, the church? Well, earlier when I was talking about the domain of darkness and the kingdom of the sun, the kingdom of the sun is another word for that would be the church or the body. It's the people that God is gathering to live with him forever. That's his church. That's referred to in the New Testament as his body. Who's the head of that? Jesus. He is the beginning, the firstborn. There's that firstborn again. From the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile, I'm sorry, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to the church and who's going to be a part of this eternal kingdom, who, is, who, who has been granted permission having been rescued from the domain of darkness, permission to become citizens of this kingdom, well, there's one clear answer. The head, the one who's in charge, the one who rules over it, the one who has authority to do everything that he wants with his kingdom, and that is Jesus. He's Lord over creation, and he's Lord of the church. So the question was, can this Jesus actually do this? Can he grant salvation? Can he give this gift of righteousness? And the answer that Paul gives is is not as direct. It's not a, a yes or no answer. It's a, well, let's talk about who Jesus is. If he's, if he's God over creation and if he's God over his church, the kingdom, then the answer clearly is yes. Can Jesus save me? You bet he can. Can Jesus redeem from the darkness that I have created with my own sinful choices my life to be a part of his eternal kingdom forever? Absolutely he can. He's Lord over creation. He's Lord of the church. And if he says, you're with me now, you're with him. There's nobody that can challenge that. There's nobody to argue with him. He is the, he is the supreme authority over all of this. He is the one that you want to be on your side. If you go out, if you leave here today and you commit some kind of ridiculous crime, I don't know, you go to Clark's diner and rob them or something and probably walk out of there with like 30 bucks. But you go in there and you, 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 you commit some crime and, and you get arrested and then your mom shows up at jail and she says, well, honey, I forgive you. Guess what? You're still in jail. <laughs> she has the authority to forgive you from her from her perspective, but she does, she's not the ultimate authority. There are authorities above her who still find you guilty, who are still, if they're going to do their job right, are, are going to carry out justice for what you have done. 
So when Jesus forgives you, it's not just your mom who said, that sounds so stupid. It's not just some lower authority who you still have to answer to somebody else. You still have to pay for yours. When Jesus forgives you, there's nobody else that can find fault with you. There's nobody else that can declare you guilty. This is the point of Romans chapter eight. We have been forgiven by the highest level of authority in the universe. We have been declared righteous. We have been made citizens of his kingdom by the ultimate authority. Now, others may still judge you. Others may still say, ah, you know, Jesus might like you, but we all hate you. (laughs) But guess what? They don't have the authority. The one who has the authority has declared you his. He has declared you saved. He has declared you a part of his eternal kingdom. So before I get to the last point, I just want to emphasize, if you have not received his offer of salvation, if you have not asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and to grant you the gift of eternal life by making you a part of his eternal kingdom, there is nothing more important for you to do today than that. That's it. That's like the biggest thing that you'll do in this life. It really is. It is the most important decision that you have to make. Will you receive Jesus' offer of salvation and forgiveness for your sins by trusting that what he did on the cross was on your behalf? That he died in your place so that you could be forgiven. If you need to do that today, I urge you to do that right now. I urge you to ask him to forgive you of your sins to grant you eternal life, to make you a part of his kingdom. But if you have done that, then the question may arise, as often does, how do I know? How do I know I'm saved? This gets into a theological debate that has been going on for 2,000 years. Not Not just the how do I know that I am saved, but how will I know I, I will stay saved? And there's a debate that's been happening for 2,000 years where, where Christians, good, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians have come to disagree over the nature of salvation, namely whether it is a permanent thing that once you have received that gift of salvation and, and repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, whether there's anything that could ever take that away or whether you are eternally secure in that salvation. And both sides have their text. Both sides are gonna say, well, what about this verse? And the other side's gonna say, what about this verse? And they're gonna wrestle with each other. And, and, and I have a view on this and I have convictions about all of this, but there's something interesting that happens in Colossians chapter one because you have this nice symmetrical passage, right? You've got salvation, salvation in the middle, the Lord of our salvation, Jesus. Like Paul is just making really clear, I really want you to know what salvation is, but more than that, I want you to know from whom salvation comes. And then he says something that breaks the symmetry of this passage. And I think when that happens, that could be a sign that that this is supposed to stand out to us. That now now you you, kind of, 
He kind of changed gears on me there. And that comes in verse 23. Let me read, let me, oh, let me give you the fill in the blanks. I did this in the first service too. I built up to reading verse 23, but then I realized oh, in the slides behind me, I got to give you the fill in the blanks. So what is the sign of our salvation? The sign of our salvation will be faithfulness to the gospel. Write that down. The sign of our salvation will be faithfulness to the gospel. How we, we know that the salvation lives in us. Paul says in verse 23, remember, salvation, Jesus, salvation. Then he says, verse 23, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul breaks, breaks away from this beautiful description of what salvation is and how Jesus is, has the right to grant salvation to now turn to us in our response to the gospel. And he says, how will you know you have salvation He says, if you remain grounded and steadfast. Okay, so can you lose your salvation uh, or are you saved forever? And one answer to that question and to that debate is one thing we will know. Those who are saved are the ones who remain grounded and steadfast. And so some would say, yes, that's, that is the fruit of perseverance, proving salvation. And those who do not persevere were never really saved. And others will say, no, some were saved, but maybe fell away and forfeited their salvation. But we all need to agree that those who are saved are the ones who remain grounded and steadfast. It's our faithfulness to the gospel that will be the fruit or the evidence that we have received such salvation. Why does Paul say this? Well, if you understand the context of the book of Colossians, it's really helpful here. Because Paul's writing this letter to a church in a city called Colossae. And in Colossae, the gospel has been preached through this man named Epaphras. He's preached the gospel and many have believed and they've formed the church. But after the gospel had been preached and the church had been formed, then other people started to come in and they started to add false teaching to that gospel. They started to tell people that yes, Jesus is part of the reason that we are saved. Excuse me. But now there are things that we need to do to add to the work of Jesus. There are things like, you know, just some examples from the other books of the New Testament, because we don't know exactly what the false teaching was in Colossae, but some of the things that would come up often were like, Yes, you need to receive Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. That, was, that comes out of the tradition of the Old Testament Jewish faith and everything. Seems kind of odd, but that was one of the things that they were teaching. You must be circumcised, or you must keep the Sabbath, or you must, it's Jesus plus this and this and this. And Paul's writing to them to inform them that is a corruption of the gospel. One of the reasons why He said that Jesus is Lord over creation and Jesus is Lord over the church is to remind them that he is the one who has done the work required to accomplish our salvation. What are you gonna add to 
the Lord of creation laying down his life for you? How can you improve upon that? The answer is that you can't. And so Paul writes to these believers who are being, apparently some of them are being led astray. They're being pulled away to believe these distorted gospels. And he says, hey guys, here's the gospel. Jesus does this. He reconciles you. He declares you holy, faultless, and blameless. And so what do you need to do? Remain grounded and steadfast in this faith. And don't allow yourself to be shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This in no way is meant to negate our correct response to salvation, which should result in works. But the difference between works that are a response to our salvation, which God intends for us to do, and what is happening here in Colossae is that they are attaching their works to the accomplishment of their salvation. They are believing that they are contributing to, they are adding to or improving upon the work of Jesus on their behalf. And Paul wants to be clear, that is not the gospel. You will not be saved by anything you have done. You are to remain grounded and steadfast in the hope of the gospel that you heard, that Jesus has done it all. He's the Lord over creation. He's the one who rescues, redeems, and reconciles. Our response is to stay faithful to the gospel. What does this mean for us today? Well, I think just as those in the first century who are receiving this letter, we have similar tendencies to stray from the hope of the gospel. We have similar tendencies to place our hope in something other than the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And whether that's in terms of our salvation, perhaps we're, yes, you know, I was a mess when Jesus saved me, but now I've cleaned my life up and, you know, here I am, I go to church all the time and I stopped doing this and I stopped doing that and now I read my Bible and I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. And so, you know, like, I don't really need Jesus anymore. Nobody would actually say that, but we start to feel that way. Like, I'm pretty good on my own. And and Paul warns us against that. Another way I think we can stray from the hope of the gospel is we've, we've allowed ourselves to become consumed by the hopes that this world offers us. We've allowed ourselves to be less focused on the hope that we have to be with Jesus forever and that we are a part of his kingdom even now. And we've we've focused more on the hope of the things of this world. You know, I'm just gonna, um, you know, I believe in Jesus and when I die, I know I'm gonna go to heaven, but you know, my priorities here are, I'm gonna save up some money, buy that nice home down in Florida and just live a nice comfortable retirement, you know, or something like that. Whatever it is, we we place our hope in the things of this world. That's not to say you can't do those things, but is that where your hope is? Is that where your heart is? Or is your heart in, I have been rescued. I was part of the problem, living in rebellion against God. And he has rescued, redeemed, and reconciled me and brought me into his kingdom. And the best part of my life is that I now belong to him and I will be with him forever. 
Is that where your focus is? Or is your focus on something temporary in this world? And I think Paul also calls us away from those things to focus on the good news of the gospel. And so earlier I said, if you've never received Jesus Christ today, is, that's the most important thing you need to do today. But for some of us, we've received Jesus Christ, but we've allowed other hopes to enter in. And today I want to invite you to recommit yourself to the hope of the gospel, to recommit you to recommit yourself to the idea that no matter what happens between now and eternity, whether it goes well or whether it goes really poorly, my hope is in the gospel. My hope is in the fact that Jesus has redeemed me. He has brought me into his kingdom. He has repurposed me to do good for his kingdom. And that's where my life lies. And so if you need to respond to that today, I want to give you the same invitation. Right now, as we're gathered here before we leave, Will you recommit yourself to the hope of the gospel? Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask that you would make yourself known through your word, and and indeed you have. You have sent your son to come to live the perfect life that we never could and never would have, and to die a sinner's death so that our sins could be forgiven through his sacrifice. And now we have been rescued. We have been redeemed. We have been reconciled. Help us, Father, to stay in that hope. Help us to not allow things of this world to take a higher priority. Help us to not allow our own own efforts to become where we place our hope. Help us, to rest, help us to rest and trust fully in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.